Our epistle lesson this morning is found in Galatians chapter 6. We are closing out Paul's epistle to the Galatians, reading verses 11 through 18 this morning. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you would grant us understanding, clarify all that you have revealed to us, and would you lead us into all truth by the power of your spirit, Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. So on July 4th, 1776, the members of the Second Continental Congress approved the wording of the Declaration of Independence. John Hancock, the president of that Continental Congress, was the first to fix his name to the document. Sometime later in August, all the members of the Congress actually signed And Hancock famously and flamboyantly fixes his signature very largely onto the document. There are actually 6.1 square inches taken up by his signature. It dwarfs everyone else. The average size is something like 0.6 square inches. 6.1, John Hancock, flamboyant signature. He was making a point. Legend has it that Hancock says that he wanted King George to be able to read it without the aid of his spectacles. Large letters fixed onto the end of the document so that he could make his point. Years prior to this, and I don't know where Hancock got the idea, the Apostle Paul does something similar. Verse 11, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Paul typically used some type of scribe who would write the letter for him as he dictated it, as they worked it out. But here, Paul takes up the pen himself in that original copy of this letter that was sent to these churches. And he says, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. He is making a point. He puts it in capital letters of some sort. He amplifies it in some way where Paul is wanting to drive home everything that he has been arguing for six chapters. And so he pronounces it with large letters in his own hand. He wants them to hear this. He's demanding their attention. He wants to make his point. He thought that what he was saying here was of vital importance. But what exactly is the big deal. What has been the big deal across these six chapters? 
We've seen that Paul has an intensity in these six chapters that's unrivaled almost anywhere else in the Bible, and that he verges on being impolite and improper at times. Some people are deeply offended by this letter. And should Paul be so bald in his language, and should he be so bold in the confrontation? And we've seen that this conflict was actually not a conflict with secular society. It was not a diatribe against the Roman Empire and the evils that the empire was perpetrating. But rather, this letter with all of its polemic and all of its rhetoric was directed to the church. To religious people trying to do religious things. And Paul can speak in such forceful and powerful ways, challenging them and confronting them. And is that appropriate? Is it appropriate to go after people who are trying to be religious and do religious things? Are we to share those concerns? Are we to come alongside Paul and adopt those? So what is the big deal here in Galatians? And here it is. It's that sinners saved by grace are prone to domesticate the gospel. That is, that we like to bring it under our control and to append to it. That is, to add on to it certain achievements or accomplishments that somehow domesticate the gospel and the gospel becomes something that we possess and that we can contribute to, something that we do. We tame it. And when we tame it, we distort it. We dilute it. And when we dilute it, we distort it. We downplay it. And when we downplay it, we distort it. That when we domesticate the gospel, we disown Jesus. And Paul understood that these false teachers who had arrived in Galatia, to these churches that he had planted, they came teaching another gospel. And that was that these Gentile converts who had come out of paganism, that now if they were to fully convert, they must undergo the knife and be circumcised. That is, to be a Christian, they had to become Jewish. And they didn't recognize that in doing this, they had added something. They had added something to faith in Jesus that is what makes us right in front of God. They said, no, you must have faith in Jesus, and you also must be circumcised. They had appended something, and they had made it a human achievement, something that could be done that would make you right with God. They were stapling something else onto what God actually requires. And in the end, they were saying that Jesus' death was not sufficient for sins. It was not sufficient to handle sin. Something else had to be done. This is how Paul understands what they were doing. And it's a vital threat for the church then and there. And it's a vital threat for the church here and now. And so we need these large letters blaring out at us. We need them coming to us with all their force and all their polemic and all of the rhetoric. And we need to receive it and hear it. Because when the sufficiency of the cross is challenged, it means that we have a deficient understanding of grace. That we're actually not understanding how God relates to us. When we're piling up our works and achievements and accomplishments on top of what Jesus has done for us, and we think that that's going to make us right with God, that we can be sure we're going to get there because of that, then we've really misunderstood the whole thing. We've missed it. 
To add to Christ is to abandon Christ. To downplay grace is to disown grace. To supplement Jesus is to supplant Jesus. This is the whole of Paul's argument for us. This is what he wants us to hear. That that other gospel where we must do something and add something on and spruce up Jesus' death and somehow make it better, make ourselves acceptable, that that's not the gospel. That's a human gospel. It's a human tradition. It doesn't come from God. And here at the close of the letter, as he sums up all of this argument, what he's going to address is how this actually happens. How does a church forsake this free grace of God, this free gift that comes to us, this act of new creation that God works through the death and resurrection of Jesus? How does it happen? How did it happen then and there in Galatia, and how can it happen here and now in Jacksonville? There's three things that Paul presents, the ways that we tend to dilute and downplay the gospel. The first you see in verse 12 is that it happens when we emphasize keeping up appearances. Verse 12, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. Good showing in the flesh, good showing is those literally translated who want to have a good face. And so Paul is examining their motives here, and he finds them wanting. He's saying it is those who want to have a good face in front of others, those who want to be acceptable and accepted, that there's some kind of social expectation happening here. We've seen throughout the letter that Paul's adversaries are Jewish Christians who come from Pharisaic origins, and they were saying that the Gentile converts needed to observe the law. And so what seems to happen here, you find, about the, find out about this in Acts chapter 15, is that Barnabas and Peter and many other Jewish Christians, that they gave in and they collapsed to these Pharisees who converted to Christ, and they said, yes, that the Gentile converts must obey the law, that they must come under at least the sign of circumcision. And so they began to cut them out and not allow them to come to the communion table unless they had been circumcised. They wanted to simply keep up appearances to keep these other Christians happy. And they, they didn't recognize when they did this that they were saying that the cross was not sufficient, that they were adding something else on that had to happen. And so what they were doing, in effect, was polishing up the outside, some external appearance to make a good show of it externally to the world around them and not being concerned with the realities that God is most primarily concerned with. And so when we do this, we neglect the actual truth of what God says about us, that the most primary and important need that we have is not to polish up the outside of the cup, but rather is to stand right with God, to be made right with God. And that's something that we can't do under our own power. It doesn't lie in our control. That has to come from God. Remember what he says in verse 15, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. That we must be newly created in front of God. And that first involves this great statement, this new status that God gives us through Jesus. That we've been justified or declared righteous or made right in front of God. And that happens through Jesus and Jesus alone. 
Several years ago, there was a young guy in my church in Washington, D.C. He came from a different cultural background than I did, and he was tattooed and wore pretty casual clothes. I grew up in the South where khaki pants are part of a uniform that you conform to. He didn't, and when he was with me, he felt judged. He'd actually been pretty marvelously received by the church, but he just felt judged, and so we had small conversation about it. I told him that I didn't care, and he told me, well, I need to find a place where I fit in, a place that looks a little bit more like me. On one hand, I could understand that, and I could appreciate it. He did look different than me, and I looked different to him. But the real challenge for us is this is the way that we're prone to think. But the primary thing when it comes to all of these issues is not whether we fit in, whether people are from our cultural background, whether they dress like us, whether they look like us. That's not the status of our belonging in the church. And what I wanted to say to my friend was that the most important thing for you is to find a church who doesn't care about what you look like. That that's the kind of church you want to go to. Now, there may be a church that people look like you and they don't really care about that. But the bottom line is, could that church that looks like you, could they accept me in my khaki pants and blue shirt? Because I'm not changing it. Never felt the need to. It works. And friends, that's the point is that all of the external things that we can append to the gospel, all the things that we can do to keep up appearances and show a good face, that they don't matter. The kind of church we want is the church that receives us because of our faith in Jesus. Tattoos or khakis or whatever it is, it doesn't matter. Whether you're a hipster or you're 80, it doesn't matter. That all of these distinctions we draw have been nullified. It's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision. It's new creation. It's the end of the day for the gospel, and yet we compromise that by wanting to keep up social appearances and making those social appearances primary to our justification in Christ. Second thing, though, that happens is this compromise that takes place when fear directs our theology. Second half of verse 12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. This gets into the political context that the Galatian church and the early Christians found themselves you remember that we said that the Jewish religion had been given a special license by the Roman Empire to operate. That was that they did not have to kneel to the Roman emperor. Everyone else had to. But if you were a faithful Jew, you could live in the Roman Empire and not be persecuted, and you could also worship your God and not bow to the Roman gods and emperor. It was a special license. In the early years of Christianity... Christians operated under that Jewish license because they claimed that their Jesus was the Jewish Messiah and that their story was the fulfillment of all that Judaism had been pointing to, that they were now the true Israel of God, as Paul is going to say in a moment, that ethnic Israel no longer mattered, that it was those who were in Christ, the true Israelite king. And so what happens, though, is that 
the Jews who did not convert did not like these Christians. And they did not appreciate that they were drafting off of their license. And so the Jews, you find this all through the book of Acts, begin persecuting the early church. And we know that they began to put political pressure on the early church by going to the Roman authorities. By going to those Roman authorities and saying, these people are not true Jews and cannot operate under this license. And as that happened, persecution began to well up in the early church. And so one of the things that's going on here in the book of Galatians is that some Christians, well-intentioned most likely, out of fear, not wanting to be persecuted, say, let's make ourselves look Jewish. And those non-circumcised Gentiles who have converted and believed in Jesus, they are our worst enemy right now because they're making us not look Jewish. You have to be circumcised to be Jewish. And do you see what was motivating them? It was fear. It's understandable. But that fear began to direct their theology and their understanding of grace. And this is what can't happen. This is where the gospel was compromised. Fear drove the agenda for some of these Christians. And they wanted the church to look more Jewish. And friends, for us, even though we don't deal with that political context... It's not that we're immune to fear. And it's not that we're immune to fear impacting and directing our theology. There are many things in the 21st century that we have fears about as American Christians. And we must be very self-aware that those fears, often derived from our own culture, cannot begin to direct and to guide and to, to lead our understanding of God's revelation, of God's grace. And they can't impact. And it especially can't impact who and how we receive people into the church. That's what happened in Galatia. And this is why Paul comes with such polemic against it. It was complete compromise of the grace of God because of fear. Now, the third piece to this is that it happens when we boast in our achievements and accomplishments. Verse 13, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Paul is arguing that, yes, these Jewish Christians who are encouraging you to be circumcised to come under the law, that they themselves don't keep the law because Paul has argued in chapter 3 that they can't keep the law, that the law simply locks us up in sin and condemns us. And so they're actually hypocrites, but they're wanting to boast in your flesh. That is in the fact that you have been circumcised, that there is some achievement and some accomplishment for them. Like David, who circumcised his Philistine enemies and brought back those foreskins as a sign of celebration and victory. This is what Paul is saying. They want to boast in your flesh that they have brought you into the household of faith properly. It was in this achievement. It was in this idea that they had done something and that you had done something in becoming a true Christian by becoming Jewish. And it is a profound lack of self-awareness 
that drives this type of boasting. Paul just says this in verse 13, for even those who circumcise do not themselves keep the law, and yet they thought they were walking in that way, and yet they weren't. And friends, when we begin to boast in some accomplishment or achievement that we can tack on to Jesus, this is what has happened to us, that we are extremely unaware of ourselves, that we are lacking perception of ourselves that's accurate, that we're forgetting what our sins are and who we are in front of God. And so it's important for us to do things like read the Ten Commandments and have God search our hearts. Some people say, oh, that's too religiously serious. And what we're doing in that moment is we're orienting to you to who you are apart from Christ and what it means for you to be a sinner, to feel the weight of that so that you don't boast, so that you never try, that you see it's useless, that it would do nothing for you. Everyone here was locked up under the law. No one could keep it. There was nothing to boast about. And in keeping the law and trying to boast or glory was a futile exercise. That's why we read Psalm 115 this morning. Not to us, O Lord, not to us. Not claiming the glory for anything ourselves. And boast could also be translated glory. And this is what is in the apostle's mind as he brings this reference into the passage. Not to us that we don't attempt to boast. But these are the things that happen. So how do we avoid it, though? How do we avoid fear-directing theology? How do we avoid trying to keep a good face and keep up expectations? How do we avoid this boasting in our own achievements and accomplishments? Paul says there's one thing. Verse 16 And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them. That there's one rule. That there's one rule to keep in order to avoid all of this disaster. We walk by the one rule that we are to boast in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. Just ahead of that, he gives the rule. Verse 14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. This was what Paul gives to the church in order to avoid all of these legalisms and versions of self-righteousness and misguided theology and delusions of the grace of God. One rule that we boast in the cross of Christ, and we boast in the cross of Christ alone. He understands here Jeremiah 9 and what the prophet had written so long ago in verse 23 through 25. Listen to these words. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And then the immediate next verse in 25, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. 
And this was Paul's argument, that it was just a circumcision in the flesh that had happened to Israel, and there was no new creation. And that when Jesus dies and when he is raised, that he brings forth the new creation and his death is being cut off on our behalf and it fulfills the sign of circumcision. And that in rising, he makes us right with God. That he alone can do that. And that is what is preeminent now. So it's not circumcision or uncircumcision. It's new creation. Are we in Christ? And so where's your boast? What do you glory in in life? And not just in the formal courts of church, but what do you find your confidence in that orients you to life in this world? Is it your wisdom or intelligence, like Jeremiah 9 critiques? Is it your riches or your wealth? Is it your nationality? Is it your khaki pants or your tattoos? None of it matters. None of those things that can orient us and give us a sense of self-confidence matter. That our boast is in Christ, that's in the cross of Christ and what he accomplishes for us, what he alone does. And it's only through that boast that we can fend off all the ways that the grace of God gets downplayed and diluted and denounced in the church. Because we're prone to it. Even though saved by grace, we're prone to try to append and add on our own accomplishments and achievements. Paul put his John Hancock on this letter. He put it in big letters. He's challenging us. He's demanding our attention. He's denouncing all rivals, even religious rivals, things that good religious people may do. But he says, if it dilutes the free grace of God, then it's not worthy of your attention. That's the point. You see, friends, these other gospels, they don't save. They don't deliver you. All they do is enslave you. And so make sure that your boast, your glory, is in the cross and in the cross alone. All else will only destroy you. Jesus' death alone is sufficient to save. Let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would teach us and continue to teach us that we would boast in Christ and Christ alone, that we would be crucified to the world, and that we would not glory in it, that we would not find our confidence in it, and that we not turn to all these other things that we can do that build us up, give us a sense of self-confidence, but are utterly useless. And so, Lord, direct us to your free grace, that we boast in that alone, that we know that we stand because of Jesus and Jesus alone, what he has done for us in dying on the cross and rising from the dead. May that be our identity. May that be the source of life in this church and community. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.